Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Ben, it is good to be back with you on the mic. We had to delay one of the weeks because of various things, but uh, good to be back with you. Yeah, and as we get back together here to go through more of Isaiah, we sort of recorded an introduction to Isaiah well, we, I think we gave a good introduction to Isaiah. We sort of recorded on, on 1 through 12 at the same time. And yet I want to go back and say some maybe some more things about Isaiah in general and some, some more things about 1 through 12 before we move on and go through, what, 49, 48, 49? 49, yeah. Okay. So thinking about Isaiah in general, this is, again, one of the— it's the longest in number of chapters in, in terms of the prophets, but it's not actually the longest book. There's more of other books in terms of words. Well, Jeremiah is <laughs> Jeremiah, something like 4,000 words longer than Isaiah. Yeah, there's there's Jeremiah, and yet there are a lot of chapters in Isaiah. And so we're covering here the first you know, 50 chapters. So thinking back to the context of the whole thing, we have Isaiah 1 through 39. We called first Isaiah last time where the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by an Assyrian army. That's the context. And Isaiah is this crisis manager dealing with this crisis. Mm -hmm. And he's using what's happening in the north to warn southern Judah. Hey, look, this is what's happening. And if you guys don't repent, the same thing's going to happen to you. And then you have 40 through 55, where you get messianic prophecy. And we can say that that the rest of Isaiah is the second Isaiah, although some say there's a, a third Isaiah in, in the last chapters. And then in 55 through 66, you get final judgment and restoration, and you have a new heaven and a new earth. God is telling us in Isaiah that he doesn't really want vain offerings. He doesn't want animal sacrifices. He doesn't want checklist gospel, right? He wants our hearts. He wants pure religion. He wants us to show our devotion to him by the way we treat others. He wants us to take care of the poor and the needy and the hungry and the orphans and the widows. Pure religion, right? Compare James 127. Yeah, he wants a people 
he can put his name on, he says multiple times right. in the Old Testament. And, you know, that, that really flows well into the New Testament where we start talking about taking upon ourselves the name of Christ. And so there's sort of a similar theme there, obviously applied in, in a different way, but uh, the idea is the same. Yeah, and thinking back to the commandment, Thou shalt not take upon thyself the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's my translation. Right. right. No. You know, this is <laughs> Yeah, being being Christian means if we're taking upon ourselves the name of Christ or taking upon ourselves the name of God in the Hebrew Bible, that means that if someone is looking at us, they see him. This is so a Christian is someone who who exemplifies Christ. And so the, so this is the this is the 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 vain part, right? is when we we take upon ourselves that name we say we're christians but we don't act like christians and we all fail in that way and, and we're, we're already always forgiven like christians maybe. or we don't right. even try right now and we're already always forgiven and there's a new heaven and a new earth and everything in heaven and earth is made right and all we have to do is repent turn again right to god and do the right thing yeah hmm. so that's you know that's the message that's the overall vision that I see. So then going through a little bit, some of these uh, chapters, even the ones that we already covered, we do have uh, in uh, five through eight, you have these six woes. And we've talked about in, at least I've heard in Book of Mormon, you know, discussions in Sunday school discussions, these kind of settings, you know, that there's the whoa, 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 right? That this is when you hear whoa, 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 things are really bad, right? Well, here you have six woes. So this is twice as many woes. Of course, this chapter is five through eight. But you have the greedy who push people out, and they're going to get pushed out themselves. The ones who live lavishly, they're going to die instead. The God mockers, right? Those people who, who don't take any of this seriously, they want, they want they just want to sin, right? There's, there's this idea of sin. And then you have the arrogant and you have the drunkards who rob people of justice. So, so Isaiah is speaking out to these different aspects of problems with social justice, right? And, and problems with justice in society. And then you have a vision, this vision of God's throne room. We talked about that last time, right? The, the biblically correct angels, right? And so now what's happening? The southern Judah is in trouble. And what does King Ahaz of southern Judah do? Isaiah is saying, look, turn to God. Look what happened to the northern kingdom. And he says, I wonder if Egypt can help me. <laughs> he looks for help from Egypt. Yeah. And Isaiah says, trust in God, right? not in Egypt. So Isaiah tells Ahaz to, to seek a sign, which is really interesting, right? Because normally we're getting from prophets that we shouldn't be seeking signs. But Isaiah says, come on, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And he doesn't. <laughs> and it's out of, it's out of, you know, he doesn't need God, right? So he, he refuses, and so Isaiah just gives him one anyway. Yeah. And he says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And this is Isaiah 7, uh, 14 through 16. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So this is one of the passages we called last time. Uh, a Jesus-y passage. This is a messianic prophecy, mm -hmm. and we and we I think we covered this verse uh, last yeah. time. Yeah. What stands out to me this time when you're saying that, Christopher, is he says, ha "Ask for a sign," 
and he doesn't ask a sign. And so Isaiah just gives him a sign. And, you know, it, it makes me think, look, there are signs everywhere. We just have to pick one and we can see God in it. Right. And so it's almost like Isaiah is like, you know, just looks around him and is like, oh, here's a sign. I'll explain to this how this manifests God. Right. And take a, take a woman that's pregnant and, and this is going to happen. And then this is how that manifests God. And uh, that seems a little beatitudinal to me, you know, like seeing God around us. Yeah. It also struck me this time, Christopher, just as you were saying the woe, woe unto, woe unto thing, that there were six of them and then six again, that that was almost maybe like an anti-beatitude type of thing, right? So like woe unto is almost like a curse saying this is going to happen. And then you look at Jesus in Matthew and he says, blessed are those that know, so forth, as opposed to like the woes that are pronounced upon the people. So I just sort of saw those as like anti-beatitudes. Yeah. You know, what you said about the signs that are everywhere reminded me, and this is one of the arguments that that's made in, in, in different books of uh, sacred texts, you know, in different sacred texts and different books of scripture, that there are signs uh, for those who know, as the Quran, as the Quran puts it. So there's a verse in the Quran that came to mind. It's from Surah 41, verse 53. We shall show them our signs in every region of the earth and in themselves until it becomes clear to them that this is the truth. Is it not enough that your Lord witnesses everything? And so there's, again, that even in the Quran, you find this. You find it in the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. uh, when you have the the Antichrist show up, right? Yeah, Alma chapter 30, he says that all things denote there is a God, Alma says. Exactly. So in the end uh, of this, you know, in, in this five through eight, you know, God tells Isaiah Judah is going to be destroyed, but that Isaiah shouldn't fear. So Isaiah gives the sign, he's warning King Ahaz, but he's not going to listen. So then in uh, Isaiah 9, we get Messianic prophecy again. Uh, we get Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 11. Again, we covered that last time. So now we come into the new material. So Christopher, as we were sort of discussing Isaiah over these past several days, I had been talking with people here and there about the book of Isaiah. You know, we were doing it for five weeks in the Come Follow Me. And I think I got asked maybe three or four times, hey, have you read Avraham Gileadi on this? So if the listener has not heard of Avraham Gileadi, he's a prominent Latter-day Saint scholar who writes a lot about Isaiah. And he takes an approach that focuses more on the literal fulfillment of Isaiah in our time, basically saying Isaiah saw our time and is speaking about it symbolically. And then he's given you an interpretation about how those things play out in our time. He has some interesting things to say, but we are taking a different approach. Our primary focus is on understanding the context of Isaiah in its time. And then from there, I think being able to draw modern or personal parallels can be much more effective as we understand that historical context in which Isaiah is written and presented. Yeah, I'm familiar with Abraham Gileadi's work, and I've met him. And there are others, you know, among LDS, you know, Latter-day Saint commentarists on Isaiah. There's Skousen, I've read him. There's Perry, and, and, and probably others, I'm forgetting. But we were taking a little bit different approach. And as we said last time, when, if we can understand 
as best we can, as best as possible, right, the the original context, the original intent, then it actually becomes easier for us to understand Isaiah. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to understand him saying what he's saying rather than saying something he's not saying or that he's not necessarily saying. And then at the same time, the kind of interpretations that we've made as Christians and as Latter-day Saints can actually be better understood by first thinking about the context of Isaiah and then about how we've, uh, you know, how the early Christians who were still Jews, right, read it and saw Jesus in these prophecies of a Messiah. Whereas we know in, in Latter-day Saint circles, you hear it said that the Jews thought that the Messiah would be a military kind of governor, leader, not someone like Jesus. And so the that would the, the people who followed Jesus, the original Christians, the early Christians, they were looking at this Jesus person and seeing something really different from what most Jews thought the Messiah would look like, and yet thought, this is it. This is he. This is the Messiah. And interpreted Isaiah in that way. And we have moving forward. And, and again, Latter-day Saints continue. Even scholars like Gileadi continue to interpret it in ways that speak to things that haven't even come yet. So looking at the first few chapters here, Ben, Isaiah 13 through 17. Isaiah is going to give a few oracles, a few prophecies. He's going to speak to a few different people. In fact, I, I remember telling you in pre-show discussion, I picture him facing all the cardinal points, right? All the compass points. I have something, he has something to say to Assyria, to the Philistines, to the Moabites, to Damascus. I skipped Babylon. So first Babylon. Look, Babylon's going to carry away Judah into captivity when Jerusalem falls. Babylon and Jerusalem will both be destroyed. But then he says Babylon's story ends in desolation, but Judah's in restoration. And Babylon ends up serving Judah. The king of Babylon... Now, this is a, an important passage to go into, Ben, because this is the the son of the morning. Or, as we've uh, taken to saying with the uh, Latin translation, that Lucifer, right? Mm -hmm. Then Lucifer is conflated with Satan, conflated with the serpent in the garden. And so then this is who, right? Is this satan uh, of course and then we have the satan right that which is not a person either so you have the idea of satan the satan the serpent lucifer all of these uh, conflated in some sense and so here we're looking at a king who has exalted himself and will be brought low and so the interpretation the christian interpretation becomes this is satan with a capital s so isaiah is probably referring to a particular king of babylon and Babylon's this actual place. Nowadays, we think of Babylon as not Zion, put it that way. Maybe the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. The world. You say the world, as in the one that we're supposed to be in but not of. Well, and the idea here is he's he is referencing some specific kings, those of Assyria and, and Babylon, but in a broader context, you know, for instance, we get over to verse 18 and 19. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out away from your grave like loathsome carrion, clothed with the dead, those pierced by the sword. So this is specifically alluding to the king Sargon II of Assyria, because what happened was when they came in with 
you know, when the battle happened, he was left on the field, whereas most kings are taken and they're they're put in their tombs and everything. He was left to, you know, essentially rot out on the battlefield. And so this is an allusion to that, what happened. Yeah. So then you have the Assyrians, right? Assyria will destroy northern Israel and attack southern Judah. And God will punish Assyria and free Israel. Then the Philistines, God will only protect his people. And then the Moabites. It's interesting because God mourns for the Moabites, but he still punishes them, right? Hmm. Uh, Moab will seek refuge in Judah. It may be that the Moabites are somehow related to God's people. Of course, you know, here we have this context again where when, when we say God's people, you know, the Lord, Yahweh, right? His people, the Israelites, that's not where we are as Christians today, right? Um, all, all people are God's people. And then Damascus. Now, this one really got my attention because I lived in Damascus. In fact, I lived in the old city of Damascus. And Damascus is the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. And so he says, Damascus shall be a ruinous heap. But there will be a remnant there. And this is something, this is a theme too that appears throughout Isaiah, that all these things are going to happen, but there's going to be a remnant. Now, I really had a hard time finding a time that, that you know, Damascus was a ruinous heap. So maybe this is something that's yet to come. It, it was, you know, in 734 BCE, that is somewhere around the time of Isaiah. There was a, a you know, a king of Judah, Ahaz, who came in. So King Ahaz, you know, of Judah asked for help from the king of Assyria, which is, I don't know if I can say his name, Tiglath-Pileser II. Yeah, Tiglath-Pileser. And, yeah. yeah. Who, and who defeated the allies, captured Damascus after a siege of two years, and put an end to the kingdom of Syria. So maybe, because it, although it doesn't say destroy, it says shall be a ruinous heap. We've talked about destroying not having to do necessarily with some kind of physical or material annihilation, but maybe with the end of an order, even we could say regime change, right? would be a destruction. The people no longer are the, the nation that they were. Yeah, They're sometimes now a cultural subjects. destruction. Yeah. Right, that kind of thing. Here we have a ruinous heat, but you know, Damascus is still there. There's Is there still war in Syria? I don't follow the news. Yeah, it's dying down. Uh, hopefully Damascus will remain standing, uh, even the old city. And so the other thing that's interesting is that there's supposed to be a remnant, and it's Ephraim, which is one of the 12 tribes, right? But it seems like Damascus and Ephraim get conflated in this, you know, in these chapters. In Isaiah 18, we have an oracle to the land shadowing with wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. That could be modern-day Ethiopia. It's not really clear where that is exactly. But God's going to bring judgment, and eventually even Gentile nations will pay tribute to Yahweh, which is interesting given what I just said, right, Ben? Because now we're saying that even those who aren't, quote-unquote, God's people, the Israelites, are going to give tribute to Yahweh. They're going to recognize him as God too. So that's already showing up here in the Old Testament. Yeah, there's a point here in Isaiah where we get that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess phrase. Exactly. Right? And that's, it is, it's, it's heralding the supremacy of Yahweh above all other gods. And then it, at some point here, we get a theological start of a, a theological shift where it is a little more strict monotheism, 
not only is he supreme over other gods, but other gods don't really exist. And so he will be recognized as the only true God and his people Israel will be those who rule in his name. Exactly. And in 19, now it's Egypt. Egypt's going to get its comeuppance and mercy, right? Both, let's say justice and mercy. That's one of the formulations that we use. Egypt and Assyria will end up worshiping Yahweh. So again, we have these Gentile nations that are going to worship Yahweh. Then back to the present. Again, Isaiah, sometimes he's dealing with things a little bit out there in the future, maybe not necessarily thousands of years, uh, but things that are coming. In fact, I have a, a really good example of what that looks like when it comes to his own context um, coming up. So back to the present, he gives us that as a serious attack on the Philistine city of Ashdod, when this happens, Isaiah, he's already in sackcloth, right? This is a sign of mourning. And he actually goes, well, naked for yeah. six years. Yeah. Sorry, three years, right? Three for years. Three years. Yeah. And it's it's not clear whether he did, you know, whether he was naked all the time for three years or whether he just did it off and on for three years. What does this mean, Ben? This is well, not like, you know, white shirts and ties, right? Yeah, well, this is this is kind of what prophets did, right? So when we did Ezra Nehemiah, we talked about how Nehemiah like pulled all his hair out, right? And went and sat down and cried and like they do these public displays of of mourning or or symbolic outrage that are supposed to garner the attention of the people so that they see something is going on here. This guy's acting in a strange way. What is going on? Their, their curiosity is piqued. Maybe they'll listen to him. And so that's kind of the idea behind these types of displays. Um, they're you know, in sort of in protest, but also, again, just to get the attention of the people. I mean, we've, we've seen this with other characters, even in more modern history, right? My mind just goes to um, Gandhi doing like a hunger strike, right? This is to to get yeah. attention to his cause so the people will pay attention to what's going on, something that they otherwise wouldn't really care about or think was important. And he's saying, no, this is important. Pay attention. And so this is what Isaiah is kind of doing here. I think of the Vietnamese monk who sets himself on fire in protest mm. of the Vietnam War. Yeah. That's another example. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so he's going to do that for three years. And now back to the oracles again. He gives a series of short oracles warning other nations. Again, he's really just sort of, I, I, I picture him symbolically, of course, just standing in one place and turning and facing all the nations around him yeah. and having, having something to say about each of them. Yeah. And then finally in Isaiah 22, we get an oracle for Jerusalem. And that is that Jerusalem will be attacked and destroyed. Isaiah 23 through 27. We have Tyre and Sidon now. Phoenicia are maritime traders. And so, of course, they're going to worship the god of the sea. And that's Yam. But they're going to be destroyed. And then they'll be restored. And then in Isaiah 24, we have the whole earth. You know, never mind. Let's and again, you can see him. Okay, I'm turning every which way. And now, as a matter of fact, you know what? In conclusion, the whole earth will be destroyed right. and then restored. Um, and and so the only covenant that God has with the whole earth, we could say, you, you could read it this way, right? Is Genesis eight, 
sorry, Genesis 9, 8 through 16, when God says that he won't uh, destroy the earth with a flood again. So it's interesting that, you know, there, because we can say that each of these oracles is, I, I was in my notes, you know, I said four, but I could have said two or about, or, you know, sometimes there's that kind of ambiguity. It seems like they're warnings for, they're messages to, they're, he's talking about, right, what's going to happen to these different peoples and these different places. And the overall picture that we get is that there will be destruction and, rest, and restoration, and that, as you said, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess Yahweh as Lord. So we can think again of that destruction, I think, Ben, as this kind of cultural, maybe specifically religious change, right? A, a regime change, a change of religion, a change of, it really is both, right? Because Yahweh is he's going to be a political leader too, right? Right. Yeah. Not just a, a messiah. Politically uh, as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When religion and politics just aren't separate the way they are now right. in some places. And they're not in every place now either. In the King James version, the word that's used instead of oracle is burden. And I always thought that made it really difficult to see what's going on here. Um, it's maybe just the, the wrong word for our modern context. It's archaic. But, you know, it says the burden of Babylon or the burden of, you know, whatever. And in NRSV, it uses the word oracle, which in my opinion is still a little bit archaic. We could say something like you were saying a prophecy concerning whatever, right? Or a right. message to, you said that, a message to. And the idea here is just like you said, you know, we've got a, a message for everybody. And I kind of look at it as like an ancient roast, you know, how, how yes. they will have those parties where they were going to do a roast and they like go through their list of people. And they have something to say about this person, something to say about this person. This is Isaiah's roast of the whole world, right? So he goes nation by nation and roasts them. <laughs> yes, I like that. Yes, indeed. Okay, so after we get that the whole earth will be destroyed, now we're in Isaiah 20 through 30, sorry, 28 through 30. And the message here, and, and I said this earlier, I'm comparing with Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding, etc. Now we get some woes again. We're going to get six more woes before we get through these chapters today, Ben. Woe number one, Judah. Let the invasion, the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom be a warning to you because you're next. You've hmm. spent more time with wine than with God. And their response to that is essentially... Yeah, 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 whatever, right? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, look at verse 28, 10. Then we get this Jesus-y passage uh, in 28, 16. And I didn't actually read the King James translation, Ben. And I don't, anywhere I put in a quote in my notes, I took it from King James. I read from Alter and from some NIV. So I don't know if you have this verse in KJV. I don't, I didn't put it in my notes. This is Isaiah 28:16 in the King James Version. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Yeah, and some think of that uh, foundation stone as applying to the temple in Jerusalem. I called it a Jesus-y passage. You could think of that foundation as Jesus, too. The second woe is to Ariel. This is probably just a nickname for Jerusalem. And so the warning to Ariel or to Jerusalem is, 
this a warning against the idea of the what we call the checklist gospel where you're going through the motions but your hearts are far from god which is what it tells us in isaiah 29 13 and we can compare that with matthew 15 8 and so it's interesting because what is god's response to your hearts are far from me he says i'll tell you what i'm going to do a marvelous work and a wonder for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, as we read in Psalms 95.3. Isn't that incredible? Our hearts are far from him, so he's going to do a marvelous work and a wonder. I love that. So those are the words that are used within the Latter-day Saint tradition by Joseph Smith to refer to the restoration. They're used when he talks about the discussions that he's having with Angel Moroni as well. So Isaiah, like all the phrases from Isaiah are really, you know, heavily referenced and alluded to throughout Restoration Scripture from Book of Mormon to Doctrine and Covenants to Joseph Smith history. Um, you know, it's all in there. I mean, this the scripture that we just read, 2816, that talks about the stone, the foundation. Peter takes that in the New Testament and says, that's Jesus, right? He says, They've the the Jews rejected that, so to speak. And Jacob in the Book of Mormon uses the same language and um, talking about Jesus. And that's what leads up to that's how he introduces his Jacob chapter five uh, extended allegory of the olive tree, talking about the history of the Jewish people and all that's going to happen in terms of this symbolism of the olive tree. So anyway, that, that verse, that 2816, you know, is really kind of holds a, uh, ironically enough, a sort of a, a cornerstone or a foundational <laughs> sort of place within a, uh, a Christian exegesis of the, the old Testament. Yeah. I'd like to go into this a little bit more, Ben. Uh, I, I like what you said there, you know, restoration is a theme in Isaiah. So we think of the restoration, right? As Latter-day Saints, the restoration is when it's this one time, but this happens over and over. We see the theme repeat itself throughout the Bible of, again, a destruction, meaning we're going to go back into chaos from the creation, the order of things. Order, of disorder, cosmos. reorder, or non-order, exactly. reorder, right? Yeah. Exactly. So once again, we see that here in Isaiah, again, there's this threat of destruction followed by restoration, which again, we can say is the, the the old earth becomes a new earth is how it's put. And so that's what's going on. That's what's going on in Isaiah. That's what's going on with Joseph Smith. And hopefully that's what's going on with you now, right? Right. The third world is for Judah, but indirectly, because Judah wants to make an alliance with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. And so as I, as I said, you know, God is saying, well, Isaiah is saying, trust God. God is saying he'll fight the battles for them. And they're just looking around for which one of these, you know, neighbors can I get to help me? Then in Isaiah 31 through 34, we get three more woes. Woe number one to Judah, or rather, literally, it says them that go down to Egypt for help. But we just said that was Judah looking for help from, from Egypt, right? Now, the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses, flesh, and not spirit, when the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, shall, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is helping shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. So you go to Egypt for help, that won't work. You're going to fall anyway, 
and they're going to fall with you. And then we get, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And we can actually compare that again. All these these uh, scriptures from Isaiah, we'll have to remember to mention this when we cover the New Testament, but here we can look ahead to Titus 3, 5 through 6. You can compare that. I have that here. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, Christopher, when you were talking about chapter 31, where Isaiah says, oh, you're trusting in chariots, you know, in the chariots of Egypt and, and so forth like that. I couldn't help but think of the talk that we've re referenced, you know, probably a dozen times in our podcast. And that's from Spencer W. Kimball, where he talks about the false gods we worship. And he says phrases like this, you know, gods of, of wood and stone and, and all these works of your hands, right, that you trust in instead of God to deliver you. And that's the point the exact point that Isaiah is making about the people of Israel at this time is that they're looking to their, their military might or their alliances or their technology to save them. And they're not turning to God in order to save them. Which is so different from our day, Ben. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, the last woe here, no, it's not the last woe, sorry. The fifth woe. Ye women that are at ease, ye careless daughters. And what th what this is about is about, again, pure religion. This is about women who are not, and it's, it is to women, but th it's not that the men are doing these things and the women aren't. But this is just saying something to the women who are not taking care of those who need care, right? The, the poor, the needy, the hungry, the naked, the widows, the orphans, pure religion. The sixth woe, the destroyer and, and the traitor. Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. I mean, that sounds like, if it weren't for the woe, if we could rephrase that a little bit, it sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? Hmm, yeah. And then finally, again, all the nations of the earth, Isaiah 34, 2. Edom is undone, as we've seen creation undone before, Ben. We keep getting this, right? Creation is undone. And Edom is actually described here in language that only appears in two other places in the Bible. And the first is Genesis 1-2. The second is Jeremiah 4-23. And that is tovu vavohu, formless and void. So it's clear that in writing about Edom and calling it tovu vavohu, formless and void, that Genesis 1-2 is being evoked. Same as in Jeremiah 4.23. It's evoking Genesis. It's showing us this is a, again, destruction and a restoration. Yeah, all over in Isaiah, there's references to this type of language from the Torah. In fact, Isaiah is often talked about as a commentary, essentially, on the Torah, that it's using the language from that and then applying it, reinterpreting it for their times and so we get language like this from the creation and we're going to see it over and over again they're repeating these themes god is going to do a new thing just like when he brought the people up out of egypt he's also going to bring the people back out of exile which is what we're going to get to here in a bit it, that's the the following theme 
of Isaiah. You know, God is going to do a new thing. There's going to be this destruction, but there's going to be a restoration, a recreation, a reordering of the way things are. Yeah, so what you're saying, Ben, if if Isaiah's writing in that way, commenting on and evoking, you know, passages from the Torah and his writings, then the New Testament authors aren't the first ones doing this. Correct. Right? And and this is something that I was able to see clearly when when studying the Quran, and that is that it assumes the Quran assumes that you already know the Bible stories. Right. Uh, when yeah. when you are told a story, it's to bring out a different point, and so it looks like a lot like what the Old Testament authors do with stories like the Gilgamesh story, you know, with the Noah story, with the creation stories that look like the ancient Near Eastern myths from those people surrounding Israel. Right. It's a taking of a repurposing of a story that's known in the context in which you're telling your story so that you can, again, it's familiar, but now you repurpose it so that you can get across your point. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is that you're familiar with that, that original story such that you, you follow, right? You follow the reinterpretation. And so in a sense, it's kind of building, the scripture is building upon itself, in this way. And, exactly. and, and we, we see that very clearly when we get to the New Testament, the way that it's heavily alluding to all these things in the Old Testament. It's very much building upon that tradition. Exactly. And this is why when studying Matthew last year, was it? Uh, I felt like I have no business reading Matthew. I'm not qualified to read Matthew. I haven't read, I haven't understood the Old Testament. So I'll be, uh, I'll be excited to go back to Matthew after this, Ben. In Isaiah 35 through 36, we get the return of the ransom captives, the desert balloons, too. Now, this has been read as something that has occurred in, in Isaiah's time, and it can be read again toward, you know, something to do with the last days, either as a return to the promised land from the Babylonian exile, and, you know, in the case of Isaiah's time, or we can... Uh, some, some have read it as the creation of the modern nation state of Israel. I find that highly problematic personally mm -hmm. although uh, the modern state of israel does have its streams in the desert and lots of agriculture i was surprised to learn that the modern state of israel exports tulips to holland yeah you know in the latter-day saint tradition we actually interpret this chapter 35 to refer to the saints settling in the salt lake valley in the great right. basin and also you know, the desert shall blossom wait, can and i so, say also also, yeah. <laughs> right. Because we still have the other interpretation, right? Among right. Latter-day Saints, you do find the interpretation of the modern state of Israel. And among Latter-day Saints, you can also find the interpretation that this has not yet occurred, that it has nothing to do with modern nation states, but with the return of the lost tribes. Well, the point here is that this is an archetype, right, of this kind of thing happening. And so we're going to see this theme present itself to us throughout history in multiple different contexts. And the people that are experiencing at the time, if they go and they read Isaiah, they're going to be like, oh, it's talking about me, right? And it's like, it is and it isn't at the same time. <laughs> and if it's not talking about me, if I'm not experiencing it, then it must be about the future, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Isaiah 36, back to the time when the Assyrians confront Hezekiah's guys, and they do this, by the way, in front of Judah, and they try to talk them into trusting them instead of God, and they tell them, look, you should trust in us. 
Egypt's going to fail you. And so it's interesting how that works. We, we, we talk about it in terms of Satan, right? Or the, the, the Satan or, well, Satan, uh, this idea that the lies include some kind of truth, right? It just makes yeah. it more believable. Yeah. And it is true that Egypt will fulfill them. We do get that. Well, in order to deceive, you have to entice. And to entice, you have to give some sort of something that's appealing, some sort of truth, right? And so you, you entice with that. And then the idea is that then you can deceive from there. So I think that's where that idea comes from, that that this deception, these lies have to include some truth. The next section here, 37 through 39, will bring us to the end of First Isaiah, but not to the end of this podcast. Hezekiah's response to the Assyrians is he turns to God and sends an emissary to Isaiah. And this emissary's name is Eliakim. Now, this emissary is going to let him know God will dethrone the king of Assyria. Then Assyria, having already taken the major cities in Judah and with its armies already surrounding Jerusalem, sends another missive to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah again turns to God. God tells him Assyria's king Sennacherib will enjoy a few victories, right? He's going to have some wins, but overall he's vanquished in the end before he can re-enter Jerusalem. And then we have this, this is something that we covered earlier, Ben, but we'll want to go into again. We're told that the angel of the Lord, and that's a quote, the angel of the Lord, quote unquote, shows up and kills 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Yeah. And then Sennacherib gets killed by his own sons while he's worshiping an idol in the seeming safety of his home. He had been told that he would be killed by the sword. Again, that's a prophecy. To me, that's a good example of how sometimes um, these prophecies work, right? You're, you're going to be killed by a sword. Well, that's usually how people got killed. So I think we talked a little bit about that, Christopher, in episode 108. That would have been in Second Kings chapter 19, verse 35. Um, and so that would be, like I said, that would be part of episode 108, 2 Kings 17 through 25. I think we discussed that a little bit. One of the points there to be made is just that this number, uh, particularly the 185,000 number, is one of those hyperboles, those ancient hyperboles when talking about enemy armies and so forth. And one of the ideas here is just to show the the strength and, and power of Yahweh over the enemies of the other people so now for the sake of the listener ben just why did we talk about that in you know discussing second kings so the actual i should say like historical context if you want to look at second kings as a as a history right in scriptural sense second kings is the historical context for the book of isaiah and in Isaiah, we're not getting so much history except for these few chapters as we are this prophetic utterance, right? And so if we go back to Second Kings and we're reading about all of the doings of these kings and their wars and so forth, that is the quote-unquote historical, and I say quote historical because this is still a scriptural sacred history, right, context for the book of Isaiah. Isaiah lived in that time where if we were to go back in the book of second Kings, so we're kind of just like taking a slice out of that time here with the book of Isaiah and just exploring the prophetic utterances, the insertion of these chapters, you know, 36 through 39, I think it is, is basically just 
a transition from the point in time where the Assyrians and the Babylonians are coming to attack and the time when the people go into exile. And then we get in chapter 40, we start off with chapter 40, you know, comfort, comfort my people. This is, this is shifting to a, a different time when we get to chapter 40. This is going into the late exile. God is going to bring his people back out of exile. So this is what we kind of call second Isaiah. Uh, we, we have a time shift from chapter 39 to chapter 40, a pretty big time shift. And we're just one verse away from that. So still in 39, Hezekiah falls ill and Isaiah tells him it's time for him to die. But Hezekiah doesn't want to die. So he asks for more times on the grounds that he's been faithful to God. So then God, through Isaiah, grants him 15 more years of life. And he calls himself, this is interesting, Ben, he calls himself the God of David. Before this, we get the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now he's the mm -hmm. God of David. Yeah. And so he's invoking uh, a covenant there. Hezekiah then invites the king of Babylon. This is my favorite example of what I mean by Isaiah speaking and, and, and prophesying. He's speaking about his own time, and he's reading the writing on the wall. So what happens? Hezekiah gets a letter from the king of Babylon offering him a gift. Hezekiah says, I accept. Yes, please come and visit and bring the gift with you. <laughs> and then he, when he comes, Hezekiah shows the king of Babylon his treasure. And when he leaves, Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, this is not going to end well. What were you thinking? This is all paraphrase, of course. It makes me think of the Trojan horse. You know, the king sends a gift and they say, oh, yeah, sure. Come and take a look. <laughs> Yeah. So Isaiah's prophesying that because Hezekiah showed the king of Babylon his treasure, the king of Babylon is going to come after his treasure. Now we're into Isaiah 40. So now we're into second Isaiah. So we're back from exile. Israel is going to continue to worship the same idols or gods of Babylon for the Babylonians or gods for, you know, uh, Orthodox Israelites. It's going to be idols as they did, just same as they did in Egypt, right? They worship the gods of Egypt, they get out of there, they keep worshiping the gods, of, the gods of Egypt. And Isaiah does what? He continues to cry repentance, meaning return to Yahweh, worship Yahweh, not these foreign gods, not the Babylonian gods, not the idols, not the Egyptian gods. Um, thinking of the, the other exile. We can think of the Babylonian exile as similar to the, to the Egyptian exile. We, do, we yes, don't call it much. the Egyptian exile. No, right, yeah, but that's yeah. that's a comparison we could draw. That's so definitely the 40, idea of Isaiah, right? Is that exactly this is a, a repeat in a way of of Exodus, right? You know, we, when we did Exodus, we said, well, the only thing that really happens in the Bible is is the Exodus, right? It just keeps happening over and over again, kind of so to speak. It is the main theme of the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament, of course, the New Testament, and the Quran. And by the way, when it and comes to nonviolence, <laughs> sorry, yes, how could I forget? And the Book of Mormon. So when it comes to nonviolence, Ben, that's the story, right? Because the story is when you're confronted with violence, go somewhere else. Hmm. I think that that's how I read it. That's the, the main message, right? Yeah, well, in the Book of Mormon, it talks about, you know, the Lord would command you and, and it gives two things, whether you fight or you flee 
And and one of the things we talk about in the Book of Mormon is like, oh, actually, there's no point where the Lord explicitly commands his people to fight, but multiple times where he commands them to, quote unquote, flee, right, to go to another place. Then we have this startling example of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who, who don't flee because of their great love, and they actually go out to meet their enemies. Exactly. And I wish I could remember the, the verse in the Quran, but... And, and I'll have to paraphrase it, too, because I also don't remember the, the exact words, but it comes really close to it's a situation where there's a, a violent encounter, you know, where there's the possibility of a violent encounter, right, where violence is being faced. And God says, couldn't you go somewhere else? Like, couldn't you have gone somewhere else? Why don't you just go somewhere else? Hmm. Right? And this is what we tell our kids. He's bothering me. Well, go somewhere else <laughs> where he's not. Right. Yeah. Isaiah 40:31 reads, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Now, I thought that that was interesting, right, that language, because they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint is something that gets tied to the word of wisdom in the Latter-day Saint tradition. Yes, yeah. And the word wait here, going back to, the, to this verse, right, Isaiah 40:31 is kava, which means to wait, to look for, to hope, to expect. Uh, for those who know Spanish, we have Esperar. a verb like this too. Esperar does all of those things, right? Yeah. Hope, wait, expect, look for. And so, and th by the way, that's where we get the name esperanza or hope, right? And it also means to collect or to bind together. And so I thought it was interesting to think of it that way because then I thought of comparing it with the with religion, right? With the, the religion religio. comes from the Latin religio, which is what binds together, right? It's what binds a community together. So we can think about those uh, or they that wait upon the Lord uh, renewing their strength in that community. So those that wait upon the Lord are the community and they renew their strength by virtue of being in the community. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, we talk about symbolically the church or the community or the people of God. In, in one context, symbolically, it's like the bride and the Lord is the bridegroom, right? And and we talk about, you know, the bride is often waiting on the bridegroom, right? So that's kind of, kind of another way that that symbolism comes out. In Isaiah 42, we have another messianic prophecy. And then we get... In Isaiah 43, fear not, fear not. This occurs 366 times in the Bible. Fear not. You know, Ben, when I was a boy, I mean, I was a teenager, I guess, and I hated someone. It's a terrible thing. It, it, it really was. And it was, it was self-destructive, right? And I thought that before this happened, I thought that the opposite of love was hate. But when I hated someone, I realized that this takes as much, you know, it, it includes as much, I'm going to call it passion, right? Yeah. As, as, as love. And so I thought, well, this can't be the opposite of love then. And so then I thought it must be indifference then. And it's not hate, it's indifference. But then I learned through a book, I love books, uh, someone suggested the opposite of love is fear, and that made way more sense. We can either act out of love or we can act out of fear. I choose to act out of love, Ben. I act out of fear. 
I choose to act out of love. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think my when you're, default when you're, is when you're, fear, yeah. right? <laughs> my wife and I will often say, act out of faith, not out of fear. You know, we, we, we're talking about a decision we're trying to make or something, and we'll we'll be talking about all the bad possible things that could happen, which which is an important conversation to have. But uh, then often we step back and we say, okay, well, but like, what what's the good here? What's are we are we acting out of a faith, out of a positive desire for for good, for for progress, for a good outcome, or are we we acting or not acting out of fear of what it's going to bring? So I love that. So we could act out of fear, or we could act out of faith. And that one alliterates, and I love alliteration, Ben. Isaiah 44 through 48. Now we have Babylon in bondage. We get one of the greatest figures in all of history, Cyrus the Great. Mm -hmm. Cyrus the Great is going to put Babylon in bondage, and Christians are going to read this as he's a servant of God, but meaning because he's doing the work that God wants done, not meaning that he acknowledges Yahweh, right? I think Isaiah refers to him as an axe, you know, that God wields this axe, right? And and so he's just using him as a tool, so to speak, at least within this the symbolism of Isaiah. Yeah. For the, so for those who who don't or who aren't familiar with uh, Cyrus the Great, Xenophon, who was actually in the trenches with Socrates in the Peloponnesian War, wrote a book called The Education of Cyrus, or the Chiropaidea. Now. Many know, not everyone knows this, but many know that the father of modern management is Peter Drucker. Right? He's, he's revered as the person to turn to for management. And he doesn't have any books with leadership in the title. And in fact, if you ask him, and he actually wrote it in a book, you know, The Practice of Management in 1954, what's the best book on leadership? This is what he said. The first systematic book on leadership, the Chiropaidea of Xenophon, himself no mean leader of men, is still the best book on the subject. Hmm. This is the first book that my kids read as homeschoolers, as, as, as high school homeschoolers, put it that way. Cyrus is the model Greek. He's not Greek, mind you. He's Persian. Yeah, Persian. <laughs> but we read this. This is our summer reading before we go into reading uh, the Greek classics. And that's because he's the model, uh, the, the one to look up to, right? The one to be like for the Greeks, just like uh, Cato is for the Romans. And why is so that, Christopher? Battle... Why is Cyrus so revered? He's just a great leader. He really was just a great leader. I, I recommend the Chiropaidea, Ben. It's a really good book. Um, I know in take, some take of my... Take my word for it. Take Peter Drucker's word for it. Or see for yourself. Yeah. So I know in some of my study of history, you know, some things about Cyrus. And, and one of the ways that he managed the people that he conquered so to speak right was he was much more lenient if that's the right word in terms of how he allowed them to continue and practice their own sorts of traditions and it allowed him to rule a much larger empire in a much more stable way than had been done previously this is a method that the romans sort of tried to adopt in some ways so 
Yeah, and and this was one of the things that made the Islamic expansion happen, made it made it possible, made it so quick, and made the empire last. Is that the Muslims, you know, contrary to stories of you know convert or die, uh, allowed others to practice their own religion, and they even assimilated cultural practices and they learned from and took everything. They had the attitude that that we claim as Latter-day Saints of seeking knowledge wherever they could find it. In fact, the Prophet Muhammad said, seek knowledge even unto China. And uh, I think he also said, if there's anything uh, that is true, right, then it belongs to uh, the Muslim. It's his. It's the lost property of the believer. All truth is the lost property of the believer. So the the Babylonians are depicted as carrying around idols. And I love this image because you can picture them as weighed down by the idols. So we see them in Isaiah carrying around their idols, weighed down by them. You can think of yourself in that way. I remember going to a special evening with the Landmark Forum, I think they call it. It's an introduction to the Landmark Forum. And the seminar leader who was giving the presentation picks up the microphone stand, picks up the stool that she had there to sit on, and another chair under her arm and just sort of carries all these things. And she refers to them as these are things from our past. And then she walks up to somebody carrying all these things and says, hi, I'm available, right? I'm, you know, I'm here. And and the thing is, is you're carrying around all these things from the past. And so the, the seminar becomes about putting the past back where it belongs in the past. So you can just see the Babylonians as carrying around their idols weighed down by them, whereas Yahweh is mentioned uh, as carrying Israel around. Isn't that an interesting uh, mm. rhetorical device? Mm. Well, and Israel carries Yahweh around when they carry the, <laughs> the tabernacle, too. right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But here Isaiah says, Yahweh is carrying you guys around. Yeah. The same way that the Babylonians are carrying around their idols. So before, Christopher, we talked about how Isaiah is sort of a commentary on the Torah. For me, this this reminded me of Deuteronomy where... Uh, Moses talks about, actually it might be numbers. (laughs) Now that I think of it where Moses is talking with the Lord and he says, you know, Hey, you've born these people and now I'm their nursemaid, you know, carrying them through, I have to carry them through the wilderness. Right. So, so there's sort of this, this discussion that's already been going on between Moses and the Lord. And, and I think Isaiah kind of picks that up here, uh, that theme as he does with, with many other themes throughout. Uh, the Torah. So. Good catch, Ben. Yeah. So in Isaiah 48, the people are claiming God without actually knowing him. So he's some, saying something like, okay, you know, everything would just happen. You know how I told you it was going to happen? <laughs> I gave you a heads up, right? I, I warned you Be- because I was trying to get your attention. I mean, I had this holy roller rolling around naked, right? To try to get your attention, put it that way, for three years. Yeah. That way you'd have no excuse for thinking that your idols had anything to do with it, right? It was me. Yeah. Your idols didn't rescue you. I did. And so you can see that I'm going to do what I promise. So now I'm going to tell you some new things I'm going to do. And you've never heard anything like this. And that's where we're going next. I don't know that we actually get there all the way by going <laughs> one more chapter, right? But next week. But yeah. let's go one more chapter. Isaiah 49. I'm going to leave this one to you, Ben. Okay. Well, 
Isaiah 49 has some Jesus-y stuff going on, right? As we've, we've said uh, before. So we get this statement here in Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now I'm reading from the NRSV translation here, but obviously the language is going to sound familiar in some ways. There's this phrase here. It says, I will give you as a light to the nations. And I believe in the King James version, it just says Gentiles, right? So this is the language we're familiar with within the Latter-day Saint tradition. And a couple things here. This is the reference that that Peter is building on when he has that vision where the Lord commands him essentially to go take the gospel to the Gentiles, to people that aren't Jews anymore. And at first Peter thinks that's not the way it's supposed to be. But then he has this vision and then he uses these phrases from Isaiah to sort of justify this. Oh, now the thing that it's opening up. Right. Not only is this covenant for the people of Israel anymore, this is becoming something for everybody, for all the nations. So that's how this phrase becomes very much Jesusized. Is that is that a good? I don't think that would be the right. Christological. Like right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It becomes so again, yeah. you know, we, we see this uh, very much in in that context within the Christian context. There's some things I, I want to touch on a little bit uh, in the previous chapters that I think we still have a little bit of time to do. And I want to go back to chapter 40. Um, this is at the, the beginning of the second Isaiah section, so to speak. So we get this verse at the beginning of chapter 40, verse three, a voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Several things going on here. First off, is a note about translation with this verse because in the NRSV we get some punctuation that makes this mean a particular thing. We get a voice cries out colon and then a start of a quote in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Okay so the voice is saying quote in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Ben in, let's mention the what the original looks like. There's no punctuation. Correct. There's no, I mean, there are no periods. Hebrew right. works like this. And, 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 and. This is va, 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 va. Right? Just like Arabic. Wa, 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 wa. And we have very little precious material to write on. And so we write from border to border. There's no margins. There's no spaces. I don't know about Hebrew, but Greek manuscripts didn't even have spaces between words. And they used all capital letters. Hebrew is different. There's there's no caps and lowercase. But some of these ancient manuscripts are really hard to read. Right. And and just as a side note, the Book of Mormon is punctuated on the fly by the typesetters. It's not right. punctuated by Joseph. Yeah. yeah. It's punctuated so punctuation by people matters. that didn't even believe it was scripture. <laughs> right. Yeah. Punctuation yeah. matters. Yeah. In fact, here's an example. I have a, a grammar book called did you eat grandma? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I said it right. It actually says, <laughs> did you eat grandma? Right? There's no comma. <laughs> yeah. and, and some are familiar with each shoots and leaves. There's another one, right? So what does this tell you, Ben? Well, um, 
I think maybe the difference could be when we look at this could be for some people inconsequential, but if they were to take this verse as referring to something specific, the difference in the translation could be very consequential. You know, in the King James version, it, it takes a very different way of punctuating this because it says a voice cries out in the wilderness or, you know, a voice in the wilderness. So the voice is in the wilderness and then the quote starts, prepare the way of the Lord. And so are you preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness or is the voice in the wilderness that's preparing, that's saying prepare the way of the Lord? When we get to John the Baptist, you know, this is how the New Testament interprets this verse. It says, this is John the Baptist, you know, a voice in the wilderness. And John the Baptist is literally in the wilderness. Um, in this, um, if if the punctuation is is before that and and the voice is saying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, this is more of an allusion in many ways to the Exodus, right? The the coming out of the people into the wilderness, the Lord prepares them. They're preparing their way to go into the land. But in either case, I think we still are, are settling on a, a point here that is, is more of a, again, like an archetypal point going on. Um, and that's of this voice crying in the wilderness. This is, this is what the New Testament, you know, might call the logos of God. This is what Genesis would be, is the breath of creation. You know, the first word that God speaks in order to bring things into being out of chaos, the wilderness being symbolic chaos. It's the spark of order that's, shining in in the the primordial oceans of chaos the creation the restoration in this context in the new testament it's the new creature in christ that, that comes out of the wilderness right so all of these themes are tied up within this verse and it's used you know all over in scripture and I, there's just a ton of depth to it and a lot of meditation and, and pondering that could go in i think on this verse if if somebody wanted to spend the time so Wow, Ben, I think I'm going to have to go back and listen to this podcast. <laughs> You're starting to sound like Aviva Zornberg. <laughs> yeah, well, Thanks you know, she's definitely that. influenced me uh, on, on that point. I, I, I take things like this and I think, wow, there's there's a lot more going on with that because it's it's really referencing all these other themes, uh, you know, within the scripture. So yeah, and I think of when I think of the when I hear voice in the wilderness, I think of the voice in the whirlwind. It takes me back to Job. I actually thought of Job in chapter 43. I'm going to read these verses and see see what you think of them when you hear this. Okay. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 25 and 26. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Accuse me. Let us go to trial. Set forth your mm. case so that you may be proved right. <laughs> Indeed, it does evoke Job, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. I love it. Thanks for sharing that, Ben. There really is so much depth here. You know, I haven't let go of Job yet, or it hasn't let go of me, yeah. to be more precise. You know, when I think about what we've learned from Aviva Zornberg and what you've shared, Ben, and, and all of my experience, too, in reading world literature, other sacred texts, other great books, these books repay rereading they're worth it. If and and if you you know if you if you patiently 
persist in the text, right? In the book you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. I'm borrowing, I'm, I'm rephrasing yeah. Joseph Campbell. Right. And, and you know what? A journey of a thousand pages, if you think this is too many pages, a journey of a thousand pages begins with one page, page one. Just take it one page at a time. I hope that the context, you know, the historical context that we've provided helps clarify and, you know, make Isaiah understandable. It has helped me tremendously, Ben. And I think that, again, you can build from that. You can see Isaiah commenting on the Torah. You can see the New Testament authors commenting on Isaiah. You can see the Quran commenting on the New Testament. All of these texts are in conversation with each other. And so one of the one of the secrets, you know, to to understanding uh, the text that you read and to be able to some, sometimes people ask me how I read so much or so fast. I don't read fast, but it, it happens that if you read more surrounding context, then it just becomes easier. Uh, last week, I, I read three or four books on Montagna. And then I went into Montagna. And by the time you get through a few books and then go into Montagna himself, you know what's going on. Thank you, Ben, for being with me. Thank you to all of uh, all of our team, you know, the LDPS team, for you, Ben, my co-host, for Riley for co-hosting with me, Latter-day Contemplation. Thanks to Kyle for editing. Thanks to Tom for editing. Thanks to Bethany for dealing with social media so I don't have to. I'm kidding. Uh, I still, I, I'm, I'm lurking. You know, I'm lurking again back on Facebook. Reach out to me. I've received some messages and, and friend requests. If you have comments for us, a great place to leave comments on an episode is in the LDPS Facebook group, I guess. What's it called, Ben? Yeah, Latter-day Peace Studies, you know, nonviolence group. Um, I think we have seen a few people... Uh, join lately that it seems correlated with us giving the name of that on our our podcast so you know if there's people that still want to join that group that would uh, be great yeah you're welcome and then you know there's there's also youtube you know youtube allows comments per episode the thing about podcasting apps or podcast apps is they don't allow comments but on the entire podcast we do welcome those also if you have something to say about the podcast, preferably positive. Uh, otherwise, keep it to yourself. Uh, no, really. <laughs> please let us know You know what, what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, feelings, please share. Reach out to us. And then there's our Come Follow Me study group on Sunday mornings. That's at uh, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific. And the invitation is usually posted at least you know by right before the meeting, right? Yeah, and, and the links the links the same every week. So if you grab it one week, it works the next week. Please join me for that. Great. Well, thank you, Christopher, for your time today and uh, discussing more of Isaiah. We covered essentially chapters 13 through 49, which is two weeks of the Come Follow Me curriculum. Our plan right now is to cover the rest of Isaiah in one more episode that we'll record next week, so that we can get back on track uh, time-wise with our recording and release of the episodes. Until then, for Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson.